All right, Trinity Church, how you doing? Doing well. Hey, I do what a great job the worship team did. I'm a huge John Foreman song, and so love that. What'd you think of the horns today? Pretty sweet, huh? That was rad. Good stuff. All kinds of good things. Just a great use of the different talents and gifts that God's brought to Trinity Church. I want to welcome you. If you are a guest today, a visitor with, uh, came on your own or with someone, we're so grateful that you made today part of your weekend. And if you're a part of Trinity Church and this is kind of normal for you, welcome. We're glad you're here and we're excited to continue on in a series that we've been in called I Am. And we're looking at the eight I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible today, you can open it to John chapter 10. John is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 10. We were actually in John 10 last week. We're continuing right where we left off, and we'll pick that up in a second. If you have notes today in your worship fold, if you want to take those out, that'll help you track with us a little bit, as well as prepare you for your home group this week as you guys talk and have a discussion based on what we're doing here today. I want to tell you what a great thing it was. Just We come right off of uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday with 40 of our Trinity leaders, whether they were pastors and spouses, elders and spouses, ministry leaders of key parts of Trinity Church. We're at an event called Thrive, a conference out in the Palm Springs area, and just had an amazing time being encouraged, being challenged, And now come back ready to say, God, what do you have next for us? And just, I really wanted you to hear how grateful I am, number one, for the opportunity even for us to go get away and go to an event like that, but also how encouraged I am about the leadership at Trinity Church and excited I am to move forward with this group of people. So really good stuff, very exciting. And you'll hear some more about in the next coming weeks. We just had a great time and glad to be back with you today. Well, what we've been doing, here's where we've been at. We've been walking through a series of these statements that Jesus makes. We began when Jesus said in John chapter 8, I am, I am. Establishing himself as far more than a good guy, far more than a great teacher or prophet, Jesus claimed to be God. Everybody in earshot knew exactly what he meant because they picked up rocks to kill him for blasphemy because of what he said. And by Jesus establishing himself as God, as we look through this series, we realize two things. That he is unlike anyone who's come before him or anyone who's come like after him. And as a result of that, he is to be so greatly esteemed and worshipped. What we also realize is that all of the other I am statements make sense. They can happen because Jesus is God. Not just another prophet, not just another good teacher. He can actually live up to what he said. The second week we looked at Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. And what we saw within that passage in John chapter 6 was Jesus dialing in and directing us toward our needs much more than our wants. What we need is life, but what we want is lunch. And Jesus brought that to life. Hilke, a couple weeks ago, looked at John chapter 9. Jesus healing a man who had been born blind, never seen the light of day. And as a result, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And he had this great statement at the end of that message. I want to quote him right so I don't get it wrong. But it was so, such a great takeaway. It was, It's not until we recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Remember that sequence, uh, the the man born blind. He's a man. 
He's a, a teacher, he's a prophet, and then ultimately landing on the fact that he is the Son of God. It's not until we recognize him as the Son of God that he'll be the light of our lives. Last week we looked at this idea of Jesus saying, I am the door, I am the gate for the sheep. And in doing so, what Jesus invited you and I into is into his protection, into his provision, into his super abundance. The abundant life, life to the full, life to the max. Jesus says, I have come for this purpose. And it's not just a a later on eternal thing. Eternity begins today. And that whole reality. And so today we push forward a little bit more into this idea. We actually follow the exact words of last week. I've come to bring you life to the full. John chapter 10, verse 11 is where we'll go today. Talking about Jesus being the good shepherd. We said last week that, just like for this week, in order to let this metaphor or illustration make sense, we have to grab hold of the fact of who we are in the story. And in today's passage, when we hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd, you need to know who you are in the story throughout for it to make sense. And here's a hint. You're not the shepherd. So by inference, you're the sheep. And as we grab hold of what that means and the implications that it's going to make so, not just logical sense today, but it's going to make soul sense to understand who we are and who Jesus says he is. So in my family, I have four kids and my second oldest is Aaliyah. Aaliyah's 17. Aaliyah's here this morning. There she is. So Aaliyah, when she was young really had an inordinate set of fears. Now you're like, well, I don't know why I raised my hand. Why do I want, why do I want people to know that I'm here? So, um, of which she's really grown out of. It's really been cool. But when she's a little girl, uh, Aaliyah would be frightened by things that, that obviously to a parent wouldn't make sense. And, and she would even look back now and laugh and go, I can't believe that ever made me afraid. And there was a a time when these fears were growing, and sometimes it would be about a certain instance in the moment, and other times a a recurring issue, but whatever it was. I remember she's about five years old, and I remember just at my wits end trying to help her understand, Aaliyah, it's going to be okay. And I took a knee one day, and I had her little five-year-old self right in front of me, and I said, Aaliyah, think of it this way. You're the sheep. I'm the shepherd. You're the sheep, I'm the shepherd. You're the little lamb, and you're mine. And as we navigate, as we move forward together as father and daughter, you're going to need to trust me. You're going to need to know that I'm here to protect you. I'm here to provide for you. That's what a good shepherd does. And as we talked it through, what we said in that first concept of talking that through is that she needed to understand who she is in this relationship. That she's a shepherd who needs to follow, who needs to be led by the, oh, she's a sheep. I'm sorry. Did I just say she's the shepherd? Guess what? She's not. Right now at 17, she might go, nah, tables have turned, dad. Talking to her five-year-old self, I said, you're the sheep. You need to be led. That's your job. That's your role in this relationship. And, and Aaliyah, I'm a shepherd. I'm a good shepherd. I, it's my job to lead you. 
And if you remember who you are in the story, if you remember who you are in this relationship, I'll remember who I am. And if we both do our jobs, good things are going to happen. We would refer to that idea of shepherd and sheep over the course of the next few years. And like in any relationship, sometimes it was really helpful, other times not. But we'll both look on that metaphor with great fondness as we go on in life. Because we realize that that idea really did frame the relationship between father and daughter, between shepherd and sheep. You see, David wrote about this same concept a thousand years before Jesus ever said what he's going to say to us today. And we said last week, David has this very interesting perspective because David was a shepherd. He knew well what that job description was. He knew so well what it meant to protect and provide for his sheep. But he flips things around and in the 23rd Psalm, he actually takes on the persona of a sheep instead and recognizes the rightful shepherd in the story. The shepherd we're going to be introduced to today whose name is Jesus. The shepherd, the song that we just sang. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley. Some of your translations, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't have any time to do this, but I want to say something that just totally broke through to me this week. The 23rd Psalm is something we often will rightly so talk about, use at a memorial service. But I want you to know this psalm is meant for so much more. It's something to reflect on literally a daily, consistently in our lives, reminding ourselves of who we are in the relationship. You're not the shepherd. I am not the shepherd. You're the sheep. I am the sheep. And something that I found so powerful when I was looking over this psalm this week, it's never, I've, I've known this since I was a child, had it memorized. I've used it at probably every funeral I've ever done, but I never noticed it until this week. Look down at verse three. It says, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Watch this. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you. Are with me. Verses 1, 2, and 3, the shepherd is a he. Verse 4, when the sheep is walking through the valley is when he becomes a you. You guide me. You guard me with your rod and your staff. You anoint my head with oil. I can't know the things that you're going through today in this room. But in a group our size, I know there is someone indeed or someone's walking through that valley. And I want to tell you something that for the first time just caught me in such a rich way. Jesus might very well be a he. And your walk with him 
until you go through that valley, but in the valley you will know him as you. He's not third person removed, he's second person familiar. When you look to him and reach out to him because you have nowhere else to look and you are deathly afraid, that's where it seems like the relationship changes from objective to subjective, from out there to right here. And I want to encourage you today, if you're walking through the darkest valley, that Jesus, the good shepherd, he invites you to know him so closely, so intimately, as we're going to see in our passage today. No longer information, intellectual, academic information, but right here, right next to you. That's the kind of knowledge he says, I want you to know me that way. You see, today what Jesus is going to do, he's going to contrast His role is the good shepherd with that of a hired hand. Someone who will come and will deal with the sheep as much as he can until danger comes and then he'll run. And we're going to see consistently that Jesus says, I give everything for the sheep. The big idea today, the now what thing that we want to walk away with that I say at the beginning so it'll keep on our brain. I originally wrote it wrong. I originally wrote because Jesus is a good shepherd. He's not a good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And because he is the good shepherd, you can trust where he's leading you. In your notes, make that correction, please, because I wouldn't want you to get that wrong. Jesus is the good shepherd. Dialing into our notes today, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep because, number one, he's intensely invested in them. He lays down his life for his sheep because he is intensely invested invested in them. Here's the stage. We've said it a moment ago. We said last week that in this whole Jesus healing the blind man, the Pharisees go nuts because people around are saying, who's ever done this before? This guy is a big deal. He might be something that we've been looking for called Messiah. And the Pharisees will not refuse. They refuse to believe that Jesus could be that. So as they're building their case against him in John chapter 9, then Jesus is still talking to them in John chapter 10, like we saw last week, this whole idea when he says, I'm the gate, I'm the door for the sheep. We continue that same flow of thought today, following right after Jesus saying, I've come to bring you life to the full. John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You see, three times today we're going to hear Jesus say the same phrase, I lay down my life for the sheep. This intense phrase of sacrifice. And here at the very beginning of the passage, as he's walking out that idea, he's saying, because I am the good shepherd, I am willing to give up everything for the sake, for the benefit, for the well-being of the sheep, even to the point of offering my own life. We'll see today it's a willingness that begins in our passage that's going to be culminated by a direct intentionality. I'm not just willing to lay down my life, I'm planning on. This is how we begin with this kind of contrast between what, what uh, Jesus, the, the good shepherd, the owner, versus the hired hand. Last week, Jesus was contrasting himself with thieves and robbers. 
Thieves and robbers try to get into the sheep pen from over the wall or from some other way. But the gate, the gate keeps them from coming through. And the gate knows those sheep and protects and provides for them. He contrasts this week with a hired hand. The hired hand, he won't lay down his life for the sheep. I mean, he has some degree of investment. He's not just out there volunteering. He's being paid. But when he sees a ferocious beast coming his way, it doesn't matter what's in his pocket for what he's getting paid. He's on the run. And he's, he takes off and the sheep as a result are scattered. And by the way, the inference is when the wolf comes to scatter them, now all of a sudden he can pick them off. Because they're no longer in community. They're all running solo. That's what happens when the hired hand leaves. But the owner, the shepherd, the phrase I've been using for some different conversations recently is so-and-so doesn't have any skin in the game. So-and-so has skin in the game. That reference means I have something at stake. I have some reason to really care about what we do next, or I don't. It's that idea. The hired hand has no skin in the game. But the shepherd, the owner, has so much so. Why? Well, number one, he's purchased the sheep. Whether they were ones that he literally purchased from another flock or ones that were born to his use, either way, there was a purchase at some point. He's also the one who pays for the, and the cost and care of keeping the sheep healthy. Sheep aren't robots. They don't just run on energizer batteries. They get battered and beat up. And they need help. They need to be recovered. And so that's what an owner, a shepherd does. He pays for those expenses of providing healing for a sheep. He's also the one who profits from what sheep produce. I don't know if you've thought about that in terms of this analogy much before. I don't know if I have either. You see, in the first century, nobody had sheep as pets. Now, don't get me wrong. We'll see today, a shepherd knew his sheep intimately, knew him, them so well. But it wasn't as though, hey, what are you doing today? Well, me and my buddy Fluffy over here, we're just going to go for a walk through the neighborhood. No, sheep were actually, you gave your life to this. This was your livelihood. And why? Because sheep were productive. They didn't have to try hard to be. They produced wool just by waking up in the morning. But their wool was of great value. They gave milk. They birthed young. Sheep were productive and a shepherd benefited from what they produced. They weren't just little pets who hung around the house. They were useful to the shepherd. And for these, he cared deeply for them. In a book entitled, The Shepherd Looks at the Psalm 23, it's written by Philip Keller, who was a shepherd in New Zealand. And if you know much about New Zealand, you know shepherding is still a huge industry there. This is how he describes how the hired hands cared for their flocks in relation to how he, the owner, cared for his. He said, in my memory, I can still see one of the sheep ranches in our district which was operated by a tenant sheepman. He ought never to have been allowed to keep sheep. His stock were always thin, weak, and riddled with disease or parasites. Again and again, watch this illustration, they would come and stand at the fence, staring blankly through the woven wire at the green, lush pastures which my flock enjoyed. Had they been able to speak, I'm sure they would have said, oh, to, been, to be set free... From this master. You can visualize exactly what he's writing. These weak, 
uh, injury, uh, uh, parasite-riddled sheep walking over to a clear fence line and poking their heads through and looking at lush pasture that they were not invited to enjoy because they were owned by a hired hand. The picture is rich within our minds of the distinction and the difference And it brings us to this axiom today. It's in your notes. Ownership determines commitment. This is what Jesus, you could boil this idea down. Ownership determines commitment. Jesus declares himself to be that kind of shepherd. One who is responsible for the total quality of the sheep. And is invested to the degree that he won't keep from sparing his own life. That he will lay down his life gladly for their well-being. Watch this. That's a good thing to know when you're one of his. We should take great joy in that today. Number two in your notes, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep because he relationally knows them. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep because he relationally knows them. Those words are chosen with intent. Let me tell you why. Chapter 10, verse 14, a second time, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Watch this comparison. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That intense Godhead relationship. We sang about it today. In the song, I Believe, we sang about a Trinitarian God, a Father, Son, and Spirit. Just in that kind of connection as the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. I know my sheep. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. This next part of our passage today communicates another reason why Jesus is the good shepherd. Because he deeply knows his sheep. You know, if you and I drive by, there are places here in even Southern California, even in our local Inland Empire, that you could drive by and see like a a green hillside. Right now, everything's green, so it's great. But you see this hillside and you see a flock of sheep on the hillside. And whether that flock is 20 or 200, to you, it's just a flock of mammals eating grass. It's just a group of them. You don't know one from the other. One might have an identifying mark or not, but you don't know anything about them. They're just a gaggle, which is the wrong use of the word of group, you know. But it's just a group of sheep on a hillside. They, they have no distinction to you. Jesus, identifying himself as the good shepherd, though, understands that a good shepherd knows his sheep. He distinguishes his... Today, there's a real challenge of talking. Just want you to know. He distinguishes them from one another. This is how it works with you. Though you see a group of sheep on a hillside, they all look the same to you. When you go to a playground or you go to after school and there's just a group of children together in a group, you identify yours very quickly. That's different than trying to identify one of your children's friends from that same group. They're harder to find, but yours? And maybe yours sticks out for a lot of reasons. Like they're the one that everyone is like, you know, stop it, knock it up, whatever that is. But either way, either way, you can identify yours quickly. It's as though you take your car and you go to a mall and you park your car in a parking structure out in a parking lot and you're gone for six hours. When you walk out, when you have a vague idea of the general area where you park, and even before you even hit your clicker and try to identify your car that way, if you just look at a row of cars, you can find yours. 
from some identifying mark, from some, the great paint job or the lack thereof, yours sticks out to you. Now, the reason that's different is that if you had rented a car that day and parked it in the same general area, most likely the only way you're going to find it is if you hit the clicker. There's a distinction. Your spouse has been away on a trip for 10 days. And they come walking through the airport exit. You can't get all the way to the gate anymore. But as people are walking out through that exit, there's just a gaggle of people all coming through at once. But you find her. You find him. And you easily point them out. And you can't wait for them to come close so you can give them a hug. That's in contrast to someone that you've met once or twice. And you might even go, honestly, I don't remember what they look like. I'm going to make the little sign. Guess what? You don't need to make a sign for your spouse. You know who they are. That's what Jesus is saying. My sheep are not just a group of woolly mammals on the hillside eating grass. I know them. I know them one from the other. I even know them from other sheep that would be grazing nearby. And watch this. And they know me. There is a type of understanding, a type of knowledge, a type of relationship that we have because we have been with each other. We have been together. See, what's happened in our 21st century Christian cultures, we've made some confusion on a lot of things. But one of them is this. We've replaced the idea of academic intellectual knowledge with a kind of intimate, devotional type of knowledge that the Bible talks about that right here, right now is happening with the good shepherd and his sheep. We've replaced these and we have said the people who really know Jesus are the people who have Bible college degrees and who have seminary degrees and who have PhDs. And I will tell you, those people know a whole lot about him. But that does not equal, that is not code for the fact that they know him. Because it's very easy for us in our world to say, well, Todd, I don't have any of those things. Therefore, I must not know Jesus that well. It's a hogwash. You have the things that matter most about knowing Jesus. You have the word of God and you have time. Time to be in it, time to be alone, time to pray. And time to have relational connection with him. Because that's as Jesus offers himself. He did not come to establish a new religion. He came to offer himself in a relationship to you. It's not a bad thing. Don't hear this today. I'm not anti-academic. I'm not anti-intellectual. But the problem is in our Western mind, we have associated that is the kind of knowledge the Bible's talking about. This Greek word is gnosko, and it's much more of an experiential understanding. Paul had to deal with it in the Corinthian church. It's not new. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge puffs up. A knowledge about God alone puffs up, but love, love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. It's the, the kind of wrong kind of knowledge of God. Instead, whoever loves God, I love this. It doesn't say knows God, is known by God. Whoever loves God finds their place among his flock. And they're known by him. Think of the 12 disciples' kind of knowledge of Jesus. 
They saw all the things that the crowd saw, all the things you see in your Bible that you could read about. They saw firsthand. Just like the crowds, though. They saw Jesus take a lunch and feed thousands of people from it. They saw Jesus heal a blind man who'd never seen the light of day. But watch this. But they also saw Jesus walking on water and calming a storm, and nobody else did. Jesus in the other three Gospels, he told parables, these side-by-side stories. And when the crowds didn't get it and didn't care, it's the disciples who pursued Jesus and said, what are you talking about? And he gladly told them. You see, the disciples were exactly what a disciple is defined by. The idea of disciple is the idea, literally of the idea that the dust is sticking on your clothes. Meaning... You're following the leader so closely that the dust from his sandals as he walks the way is on your clothing. It sticks to you because you're so proximate. You see, the disciples knew what Jesus liked to do for fun. And some of you are going, oh my goodness, Todd, don't go there. Jesus did not have fun. (laughs) I don't know what kind of team sport Jesus enjoyed most. That's not in the Bible for us. Fully God, fully man, I know they had a blast. The disciples knew these things. Why? Because they were with him. They didn't just know information extendedly about him. They were there. And you would say, well, Todd, I don't have the opportunity to be with the living in flesh Jesus exactly. But you have a Bible. You have time to say, I want to know you. The way you say you know me. One of my favorite ways of showing this distinction is when Peter and John were on trial in front of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had told them after the risen Jesus had appeared to them and had sent them now to share this great news of the gospel. The Pharisees had said, stop talking in his name. Be quiet. You're done. this, This myth is becoming lore. And we don't want to hear it anymore. And they said, there's no way you're going to get us to shout. You can do whatever you want. Do whatever punishment comes next, but we won't be quiet. And it says a result of that, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw, when the Pharisees saw the courage of Peter and John, watch this, and realized that they were ordinary, unschooled men. And by the way, we would say, well, they didn't have any seminary degrees, any Bible degrees. Well, that's silly. They didn't have those. But guess what they did have? They had the synagogue. There was a whole track of people that were growing up that some of them went and devoted themselves to the synagogue and they would grow up to ultimately be scribes and leaders. The the disciples, none of them did that. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. None of them took the religious route. They were all ordinary, unschooled men. Watch. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That was the difference. That's what stood out was not how much they academically, intellectually knew about him. What stood out was that they had been with him. A good question for you to ask yourself, not looking out the window today, but looking in the mirror, it's in your notes. Is my relationship with Jesus based solely on intellectual knowledge? Am I so academic in my approach to Jesus? Or is it also based upon the relational knowledge that I have of him because I've been with Jesus? 
Jesus' sheep know him. They may or may not know lots about him, but they know him. If you're here today and you just have information about him, I want to tell you, this is the day. Right now, this is an invitation today to know him and not just know of him. Because that's his intent, that's his goal. In your notes, knowledge deepens relationship. Knowledge has this effect. It should have this effect of deepening relationship with us. I want you to see something I didn't address at this point yet. It's in verse 16. Verse 16 makes all the difference to you today if you're here and you're not of Jewish blood. Some of us may be, and that's awesome. But for many of us, you have no connection to the heritage of Israel. As Jesus was sharing this idea of sheep and shepherd, by the way, Pharisees, remember that's the audience? Pharisees couldn't help but think of the 23rd Psalm. They couldn't help but think about the times when the prophets have said, you religious leaders of our people, you have been bad shepherds. They couldn't help but think about Numbers 27 like we talked about last week. My people, Moses is saying, my people need a shepherd to bring them in and out. They're hearing all this, they're thinking of all this, and then Jesus throws this curveball they never saw coming. And it infuriates them. I have sheep from other pens. I have sheep from other places than this location and this people group. I have sheep from other people and places of the world. You have to remember that the Pharisees understood the nation of Israel as this unique called out people, and they were. So much so that everybody else on the planet fit under an umbrella we could simply call Gentile or non-Jew. Imagine your people group says, we are such and everyone is non-us. That's how the Jews thought. And so in this contrast, this is infuriating them. What do you mean? Messiah came to the house of Israel. Jesus is saying, I came to the world. And if you're here today and you don't have Jewish descent, you're saying praise God right now. Because you had no hope. If Jesus only came for the house of Israel, you would have no hope. He is what pulls us together today. He is what unites us. He is who died for our sins and rose on the third day. Every single one of us. And so Jesus says these words and he's helping them understand. I have other sheep from other pens. I've come to seek and save the lost, not just of you standing here in front of me, he says, but of the entire world. And therefore, as a result, I really am the Messiah. And by the way, we saw this a few weeks ago in our Ephesians series, or I guess months ago now. Jesus said from the very beginning, the Old Testament said from the very beginning, it's too small a thing just to come to the house of Israel. Messiah is coming to the world. It was actually in our Ephesians study that we saw this incredible power of the unifying effect. That's why Jesus says there's one flock and one shepherd. Of all the pins on the planet that are going to be coming together, I am their one shepherd because there's one flock. Look what Paul said, Ephesians 4, 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Remember we said that when we looked at Ephesians. We don't have to try to find unity We don't have to try to develop it from somewhere. We inherently have it because we are the people of God. We have put our faith in Jesus, his Savior. And as a result, that is what unifies us. He is who unifies us. So now what our job is, is not to make or create unity. It's to keep it. It's to preserve it. 
There is one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's the great news. You've been invited into Jesus' flock no matter who you are or where you come from. And I want you to watch this. That is incredibly encouraging news to you right here, right now. But I want you to hear this. What I just said is equally true of the people in your relational world. The people who live next door to you from that other ethnicity, Jesus came for them too. And he calls them into his flock. The people at work that are very different from you, Jesus is the one shepherd who's also calling them into his flock. The people that you have in your extended family, the people that you have connected through your kid's soccer program, whoever it is, the people you do life with, all of them, are invited by this one shepherd into this one flock. And I want you to hear this. He wants to use you as the key invitation. This is what he came for. This is what he calls us to. Finally, number three today, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep because he willingly obeys his father. Because he willingly obeys his father. Chapter 10, verse 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. I want you to hear this today. Some of us came in this place today, and this has been your understanding of the cross. Your understanding has been that Jesus got a raw deal. Your understanding has been that there was a plot afoot by these religious leaders, these Pharisees, with the Romans to work together in coordination to murder Jesus of Nazareth. And everything I've just said is true. But it's not really what was going on. Incredible injustice happened for Jesus to end up a completely innocent, even by a judicial record, we would know he never sinned. So he is the ultimate innocent victim. But even through a judicial system, both for the Jews and for the Romans, he'd done nothing wrong, and yet he's murdered on a Friday. Incredible injustice. However, Jesus is saying it had nothing to do with injustice. It had everything to do with mission. I have come to lay my life down. It has been my ambition from the very beginning to seek and save the lost meant to die for them. It never took Jesus by surprise. That's why Jesus said it is important that now we go to Jerusalem because I'm going to die. He told them. So many times in the Gospels, he told them, we're going to go and this is what's going to happen to me. And they completely were like, what? Again and again. And it was only upon when he died and when he rose again that they realized he was preparing us all along. Jesus willingly, missionally, intentionally offered up his own life. I want you to see, I don't want you to misunderstand the the first part of the statement we just read in John 10, 17. It said, Jesus says that because I laid down my life, my father loves me. When you hear that language, it comes off the page a little funny. And for some of us, especially who grew up in families that were performance based, that means I love you if, I love you when. If you grew up in that kind of home, when you heard those words, when you read those just now, you're thinking in your head, wait a second, does that mean the father doesn't love the son if the son doesn't obey? 
Is it that kind of relationship? And I want you to hear clearly today, no. That's not the nature of what Jesus is saying in this passage. Jesus is saying this. There is this incredible mutual love between the Father and the Son. And my obedience to the Father's command elicits love from him. It's not some sort of a harsh dictator who says, now go. And when Jesus goes, he says, exactly, that's what I told you to do. Why would there be any affirmation of that? Instead, it's a father to son who says, son, this is your calling. This is your directive. And when Jesus steps into that, the father loves that obedience. The father is rejoicing over what the son is doing on behalf of us. Jesus wants to set the record straight. He is not a victim. This is what he came to do. And our final axiom today, obedience demonstrates love. Obedience demonstrates love. So here's the big question. If all this is true about Jesus being the I am, being the good shepherd, what does this relate to us? Like what is our to do? What is our connect the dot from this reality? And it's an interesting thing. The good shepherd should elicit good followers. That is the reality. We should have an increased confidence. We should have a greater joy in following the good shepherd because of how good he is. That's a a, a tandem reality to this issue. And it's that followership of this good shepherd. Imagine yourself. We've said all along today, you're the sheep. Imagine that you're the sheep right now. You're just doing your thing. And you have a really good shepherd. And he's standing right next to you. No sheep ever looked this way and looked at a shepherd. That would be like a monster sheep, and that one would take over the planet. Okay? No sheep does that. They're all down here. So if if you're doing your thing and a sheep is going to look at the shepherd, he's going to look up. And today's passage elicits a followership that says, where you lead, I'm going to follow. But here's the wild thing. Jesus would say that your followership of me definitely has a vertical component, but it also has a horizontal one when you look side by side. And you notice that you're in a flock and you look to your right, to your left, and you see other sheep like you. Jesus says, following me inherently has a reality towards them. 1 John chapter three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ, watch, laid down his life for us. And we, subsequently, like, and this just makes sense, ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Do you know these are the exact same phrases used in 1 John that are used in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, I lay down my life. In the same way, lay down your lives for one another. That's the call to our kind of following of Jesus. In your notes, he's leading you not only toward following him more closely, but in caring for the other sheep you're following alongside of. A vertical component of followership and a horizontal component of followership. Follow our shepherd and watch this wild reality. As a sheep, you get to be a co-shepherd of others. What an incredibly cool idea. Our big ticket, now what statement? Because Jesus is the good shepherd. You can trust where he's leading you. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful, powerful, joy-filled metaphor today. That Jesus says, I want you to know me. I want you to know what I'm like, and one of the ways you can know me is when you look over there and see a shepherd with his sheep. I'm like the good shepherd. 
I lay down my life for the sheep. I know the sheep. And I do so out of obedience to my Father. God, today would you well up within us this great and growing confidence that we can follow anywhere Jesus leads us because he is indeed good. Our good shepherd, let us rally around that idea. Let that be our foundation and our foothold that we walk out into this week. He's a good shepherd that elicits good following. You may be here today and you would say, well, Todd, that's all great. I, I can't honestly say Jesus is my shepherd. I don't know anything about him and I've never really been interested and now I don't know what to do. Or others would say, I know a lot about him. Tons of Sunday school stories. Tons of things that I've heard people from a stage teach, but I can honestly say I don't know him. I want to tell you great news is that you can. You can A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you are a sheep who is way over here, out out of bounds, strayed. And there's a break in the relationship because you've lived your own way, not God's. There's no hope for you trying to correct yourself. And you've tried and you know what I'm saying is true. So be believe. Believe that Jesus is the good shepherd that he has described himself as today. Believe that indeed he laid down his life on your behalf so that your brokenness, your sin could be healed, could be forgiven. Believe he's the only savior available. See is choose. Choose like we said today, walking in his steps, that his dust, the dust from his sandals, you're walking so close to him, the dust is sticking to you. Follow as a good sheep follows his good shepherd. And today you can make that decision to begin following Jesus as if you never have. I want to encourage you to do so. And I want to encourage all of us today, let us sing with loud voices in one accord, words today of devotion and commitment, I will follow. Jesus, we love you and we pray in your great name today.